Hey, Adam, how's it going? Going pretty well. How are you doing? Looking forward to speaking to you. What a... Um... Oh, let me just tell the viewers a little bit first, because I've been reading this and uh, excited. Astrophysicist and author of the book, The Little Book of Aliens. Adam is a leading expert on the final stages of evolution for stars like the sun, and his computational research group at the University of Rochester has developed advanced supercomputer tools for studying how stars form and how they die. Oh my goodness. Self-described evangelist of science. He's committed to showing others the beauty and power of science and exploring the proper context of science and culture. Can we start then? How do stars form? <laughs> they form, <laughs> yeah, it's interesting because that was a big chunk. Before I started studying life in the universe, one of my big uh, projects as an astrophysicist, I've, you know, I've been an astrophysicist for 30 years, was studying how stars form from giant clouds of gas. So you see all those beautiful James Webb Space Telescope images, the ones that showed like these crazy sculptures, these beautiful gaseous um, uh, clouds. That's uh, Those are star-forming nurseries, basically. It's out of those giant clouds that can span 20 light years. You'll get material collapsing under its own weight to form stars and planets. And then on some of those planets, there's a possibility of life forming. So there's a cliche that's bandied about that is we're all made of star material is there any truth to that that is absolutely true yeah no everything every atom in your body pretty much that's not hydrogen or helium so all the carbon all the nitrogen all the other stuff um was all fused inside stars it's all that those uh, when the universe was born it was mostly hydrogen with a little bit of helium and then it's only stars stars are like nuclear furnaces that build elements and so when those stars blow up or when they they when they die their elements go back, the stuff they've made in their cores goes back out into space. It's crazy. So, you know, you look at your hands and you realize like all this stuff has already been probably a couple of times a trip through <laughs> stars. My head's going to explode in a minute. Yeah, right. Let me, let me just recap this then, see if my brain's computing this correctly. Gases sloshing around that are huge <laughs> form stars, which are nuclear furnaces. Is that where we're at so far? That's where we're at. That's the first part. <laughs> okay. okay. And then the second part is the stuff in those, what they fuse in those furnaces, what they forge, that's one way of thinking about it, gets back out when the stars die, recycles a couple of times, and eventually it makes it into the cloud that formed the sun, and the planets like earth. And so there's stuff, you know, everything in your body, every element in your body, um, all the stuff was already been taken a few trips through stars. Yeah, crazy. <laughs> all right, let's slow down on this. So, so this, is, this is my every day. This is my every day. What, <laughs> what is the lifespan of a star? A typical star like the sun will last 10 billion years. <laughs> um, yeah. How old is the sun? The sun right now is about half. We're about halfway through its lifetime, five billion years. So in five billion years, what happens? The sun will uh, it'll run out of fuel. It'll expand as it's trying to like figure out how to you know how to like stay alive, and and uh, it'll actually swallow the Earth. It'll get so big that the Earth is actually swallowed, and then um, and then they'll blow off all of its outer layers with all those extra elements that has been forged. And then it'll die as a little, what we call a white dwarf, as a little crispy cinder. 
Whew, does that mean we're all going to go? Or does that mean Elon Musk oh, can yeah, save us by taking us to Mars? The sun, within a billion years, the sun is... Because what's happening is the sun is slowly heating up. So after about a billion years or so, life on Earth, the water, the oceans are going to boil off. So even though the sun still has five billion years to live, within a billion years, Earth will become Earth and its life will become in, uninhabitable. And that's really what I was writing in the book. You know, what, what I wanted people to see in the book was that, like, you know... The, our understanding, what we call astrobiology, our understanding of life now is, in you know, connected to all the stuff that happens in astronomy. It doesn't, you know, life is not independent of what's happening in the rest of the solar system, what's happening in the galaxy, what's happening in the universe. So I've got a three-month-old baby, and I look at my son, I think this is the meaning of life, the continuation of life. But for what you're saying, it's all doomed. Does that make you meditate? on the futility of everything well i don't think it's all doomed i mean you know life on earth listen a billion years is a long time so you yeah. and your son you got a lot of time it's good yeah <laughs> you know? um uh but you know what's interesting is i mean that doesn't it doesn't mean that that human life will end human beings this is the interesting thing about intelligent civilizations if we can make it through all of the horrible things that we're going through right now, you know, from climate change to, you know, AI, all the dangers that pose, then, you know, humanity could expand to the Mars to, well, eventually we could leave the solar system. I mean, intelligent civilizations have the possibility of leaving the planets that they were born on and could become essentially immortal uh, if they are smart. So the question is, are we smart? Okay, we get to Mars the sun does its thing do the people on mars survive uh the people on mars could survive or you know again we're talking a billion years from now which is you know all of human history is you know a, a fraction and human history human beings have been around for three hundred thousand years human history like agriculture started just ten thousand years ago so really when we think about a billion years it's so long that there's lots lots of things can happen and one of the things that could happen is not just Mars, but we could figure out interstellar travel, right? Just like other species. You know, again, that's one of the things I'm talking about in the book is intelligent civilizations. What what happens to an intelligent civilization? Not after a thousand or two thousand years, which is really all that's the time since Rome. But what happens if you last ten thousand, a hundred thousand? A million years. What do you become? That's the interesting question. So you know, we may we may be able to leave the entire solar system and start to settle, or you know, among the stars. Over when we're talking about timescales like that. So how do you define interstellar travel? Interstellar travel would mean the traveling between the stars. So you know, what we there's the sun. Sun is a star. That's our star. There are eight planets orbiting the sun. Uh, Earth is one of them. Um, but, and the just, you know, the, the solar system is big, but still we've already sent probes to every planet in the solar system now, even all the way out to Uranus and Neptune and Pluto, the outer edge of the solar system. But the distance between the stars is so, they're so insane, you know? Like the, the distance, it took us 10 years to send a probe to the outer edge of the solar system. Fastest thing we'd ever had, right? It would take 200,000 years for that probe to make it to the next star. That's how the distances, that's how vast the distances are. Um, and the galaxy has 400 billion stars 
separated across uh, 100,000 light years. I mean, you know, unless you work with this all day, these numbers just start to sound like, you know, uh, they just, you get, your mind goes numb. But the, the point is, is the galaxy is huge. And, you know, it's not clear whether anybody, this is the point for UFOs, when people who believe that UFOs are travelers between the stars, the distances between the stars are pretty psychotic. You know, and so you got to under you got to explain to me how they can get between the stars. Um, it may be that nobody can do it; that it's just too far. So you know, that's kind of the open question about our future. So, if we can do interstellar travel, do we need to find a planet with a conducive biosphere to settle on? Yes, yes, and that. So that is the main point of what I was writing in the little book of aliens: is that we can do that now. We have the technology beginning with the James Webb Space Telescope and the new telescopes we're building, we now have the ability to see other planets orbiting other stars, you know, hundreds of light years away. And we can tell what's going on with those planets. We can tell whether they're in the right place for life to form. We can, we can figure out what's in their atmospheres to see whether or not there's life already there. Like we're, we're at the edge of being able to detect life on distant alien planets even intelligent life. Uh, and we couldn't do this even 10 years ago. So this, this ancient question of whether or not uh, we're alone, you know, people have been arguing about this question for 2,500 years. Um, we are quite possibly the first generation to know the answer to that question because we can see these alien worlds and tell whether they're habitable or even inhabited. What would be the basic living thing on one of these planets well we think if we look at earth's history right it's the only example we have so we can use earth's history as a guide you know to understand what might happen the first thing you get and you get it pretty early are microbial life you know bacteria single-celled organisms now these you know people like oh they're so simple they're actually pretty amazing what you know let's let's not forget that microbes invented fermentation and we should all be very thankful for that, right? <laughs> um, so uh, you first start off with a microbial biosphere, which can be quite rich. Uh, and then eventually the, my, the microbial, they'll become communities, they'll become more complex. And then evolution eventually leads to multicellular animals. And then all the way up to, you know, very complex animals, and perhaps even animals like us that have a, the form of intelligence that allows us to build tools. So that's kind of the progress you think might happen. So what do you think has existed and come before us in terms of life, uh, if you contemplate infinite time? Well, you know, I, I am a, what I call an alien optimist. I think that there have been, you know, there are so many planets in, and there are so many planets in the right place for life to form. Uh, one of the major discoveries that people, I want people to understand is that we didn't know, when I was a graduate student back in the early 90s, we didn't even know whether there were any other planets orbiting any stars other than what we had here or orbiting the sun, you know, Venus, Mars, etc. And then we discovered in 1995 our first exoplanet. That's what the name we called. We discovered the first planet orbiting another star. Since then, we have found that every star you see in the sky hosts a family of worlds, right? They all have planets. And 
many of those planets, you know, are going to be like Earth. They're going to be places you can walk around, you know, even if you need a spacesuit. But, you know, there'll be mountains, there'll be valleys, there could be oceans, there'll be snow falling, you know, on, you know, in some beautiful river valley, there'll be wind blowing. So these are places. And one out of five of them is going to be in the right place for life to form, meaning that you can get liquid water. That's a new discovery. We didn't know that 10, 20 years ago. Um, so, you know, th what that shows is, is there's been a lot of possibilities for life, other kinds of life to form. So I'm an alien optimist, meaning I believe that we're not the only place that it's happened. But of course, the only way to find that out is to look. And we now have, and that's what a lot of what I'm showing in the book, in the little book of aliens, is that we now have the technology for the first time to look for life, either dumb life, meaning like microbial life, or intelligent civilizations using our telescopes. So like UFOs and UAPs, sure, you know, maybe you can think about those, but that's mostly hype. The, the, the actual scientific investigation of life in the universe really is not looking in our own skies at blurry photographs, but actually using uh, high precision tools like the JWST to look at alien worlds. So in your book, you touch on technospheres and is it noospheres? Yeah, yeah. What are they? So, yeah, so the biosphere, people probably heard the term biosphere before. The biosphere is like the sum total of life on the planet. So all the forests and all the prairies and all the microbes, you know, the plankton in the oceans, the biosphere is the total totality of that. And what is amazing that we've learned is that the biosphere has controlled or had a huge impact on the evolution of the planet Earth. Like Earth would be an entirely different kind of planet if it wasn't for the biosphere. The best example of this is, you know, take a deep breath and all that oxygen you're breathing is only there because life and the biosphere put it there. About two and a half billion years ago, life uh, invented, evolved a new form of photosynthesis, a way of getting energy from the sun that split water atoms and kind of farted and an oxygen into the air. And that's why we have 21% oxygen in the atmosphere. Before that, there was no oxygen. You know, for half of Earth's history, there was life, but there was no oxygen in the atmosphere. So the biosphere is super important. And one way we're gonna find evidence of life in the universe is by looking for the imprint of biospheres. Now, what has happened on Earth the last hundred years? We've evolved what we call a technosphere. All of Earth's, all of human technology, you know, you, you add it all together and it's clearly changing the planet, right? Climate change is one example, but it's just one example. Um, you know, if someone were to arrive, an alien were to arrive uh, and orbit the Earth, they would instantly be able to tell by the night side of the planet that the, there was a technological civilization, right? The night side is lit up. You can tell where all the cities are. Um, so there is a technosphere, which is changing the planet. And uh, um, the, with the technosphere come techno signatures, things that we could see from a distance, you know, using telescopes that would tell us that there was a technological civilization there. So biospheres and biosignatures go together. They're how we're going to tell whether or not a, pla a planet has alien life on it, just, you know, dumb life, as I call it. But technospheres and technosignatures are how we're going to be able to tell, like city lights, we can see city lights from a distance. 
um, we could see the imprint in a planet's light of the artificial illumination. That's a techno signature. So uh, yeah, all of this together shows us that we are on the edge of finding, or at least having evidence one way or the other for life in the universe. What about the noosphere? The noosphere is another name. The noosphere is this idea. Noos is a Greek word for for um, thought, and so the noosphere is a, another term that you can use for the technosphere. It's like it's like human beings built this technology that surrounds the Earth in kind of a sphere of thought, and that may sound kind of like you know kind of woo or whatever new age, but really think of all the wireless technology. Like right now, as you and I are sitting here. We're communicating through, you know, wireless technologies, but also like you, there's just, as you sit there, there's all these radio waves going through you that are really, that's thought, like why, you know, wireless technology. So the no sphere is kind of the idea that like there's this shimmering, you know, sphere around the earth of human mental activity embodied in all of these technologies. So is the biosphere susceptible to something from outer space hitting the earth and making us extinct long before the sun does its thing. Yeah, well, that certainly happened to the dinosaurs, right? Um, so, you know, that's one of the reasons why NASA and the European Space Agency have started these programs of what they call planetary defense, of figuring out, you know, if we, first of all, we have to find all the asteroids. And then once we find them, if we see ones on a collision course with us, being able to get there first and move it, you know, so that it doesn't hit us. Now, the biosphere itself, you're not going to wipe out the biosphere. Human beings are not going to destroy the biosphere. That is not going to happen. And an asteroid, you know, the biosphere is tough. Um, and uh, it's we've already been hit by, you know, pretty big uh, asteroids that, like, yeah, wiped out the dinosaurs, but it didn't wipe out life on Earth. So in that sense, the biosphere is pretty resilient. What is an asteroid? An asteroid is basically its construction debris left over from the assembly of the planets, you know, four and a half, five billion years ago. When, you know, these were asteroids are sort of, they're just, you know, large rocks, mount, they're basically flying mountains in space. And they are what's left over from when the planets were assembled. And can we attach things to asteroids? Uh, you could, but what would be better is if you want to get, if you want, you know, if you, if you, can get to an asteroid that's going to hit the earth long before it ever like you know comes towards us you can either like fly a rocket into it you know explode something on it um to push it gently because all you got to do is just move it a little tiny bit and then eventually it'll miss the earth you know um so you're not really going to attach anything to it you're going to find other ways of sort of gently pushing it um so that it doesn't it, it has a different it's like a course correction basically but say we wanted a sample, you know, like we go to the moon and we get some rocks and we bring them back to Earth and study them. Can you do that with an asteroid? Yeah, we just did it. We just did it. Like last, I think it was a couple of months ago, we had we had landed something on uh, an asteroid and it scooped up some of the, the, the dirt uh, and then returned it to Earth. So we now have this like tin. It's, a, it's, a, it's like a little tin full of asteroid uh, crust. And this stuff, what's amazing about this, this is stuff that has been undisturbed since it formed five billion years, since the birth of the solar system. This thing has just been whizzing around, and now we just scooped a little bit up, and it's going to show us all kinds of things about how the solar system was born. And again, relevant to life, you know, and, uh, and what I'm talking about in the book, um, that we think 
in that that asteroids may have delivered uh, to Earth when asteroids were hitting the Earth a lot early on, the material we needed to form life, the amino acids and things like that. Is there a risk of the butterfly effect there if we are interfering with asteroids and taking bits of them? Is that, could it change the mechanics of the universe? No, 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 not. I mean, you know, there is such the butterfly. That's a, you're right. There is definitely the butterfly effect. But these things we can tell. We understand what's called celestial mechanics, like how all these things move around. That you know, we can tell whether or not anything we did would have any kind of effect on its motion. Um, and again, you know, the rest of the universe is a long way away, so uh, you can pretty much do what you want here, and it's not going to affect the next star. All right. So an asteroid is heading to Earth. How I mean, like, how far out does it have to be for us to detect it? We're got we've gotten pretty good. We've found like most of the big ones. Everything more than probably, uh, I'm not sure what the, but you know, a few miles across, we've already found. So that's good. Um, the smaller ones, the ones that are like, you know, even something that's like half a mile across could not only could wipe out a city, could wipe out, you know, all of southern England. Um, so you really want to find, you need to find everything down to like pebbles, um, or at least not pebbles, but certainly things down to, you know, tens of meters, because they're all pretty dangerous. But we at least know and have characterized all the orbits for everything that is really planet killing size or dinosaur killing size. And earlier you said we could change the trajectory of the asteroid so it wouldn't hit us. What means do we do that? Uh, well, we just did a test of this not too long ago where we shot a, uh, a spacecraft. We just had a you know, spacecraft just like rocket right into an asteroid and we checked to see whether we changed its orbit and we had. So that was a proof of principle that, okay, it is possible to alter an asteroid just by slamming something into it. So, you know, there's a lot more, that's, we're still a long way from being able to divert an asteroid that was heading towards us, but it showed us that, okay, this in principle, this should work. And, you know, if a civilization, any civilization that's going to last a long time, and that's what we're looking for. If we're looking for intelligent civilizations, we're probably, um, and I have a whole chapter on this in the book, that really what we should be thinking about is civilizations that are much older than us. And that means they, they must have worked this out because, you know, uh, if, you're gonna, if you have a civilization that lasts for a million years, there will definitely, on that scale, time scale, be a, an asteroid that's coming to hit your planet and could wipe out your civilization. So any civilization that's lasted that long has figured out how to do this kind of planetary protection. Would that involve, if it was a giant asteroid, uh, nuclear weapons fire, being fired at it? I think if it's a giant asteroid, you know exactly where it is. You're going to know exactly how it's moving. What you might probably do is attach rocket motors to it. And just, again, because, you know, if you, if, if, if you figure out that it's going to hit you in a hundred years, and that's really what we're doing, we can literally see that. Oh, this is going to—it's on a collision course. We can predict its future hundreds of years into the future, or at least a hundred years. Um, and then you'd probably, you know, you'd attach large rocket motors. You don't have to move it very much in its orbit in order for it to miss you a hundred years, you know, a century down the road. And have we had any near misses? We have. There's lots of near misses. Things pass. Things whiz by us all the time. <laughs> Sometimes even within the moon's orbit but we see them and we know exactly where they are and so like you know we've never yet had you know a sort of like oh my god moment so um so we're good for now and hopefully you know within the next you know a few decades we'll learn enough that if we did find one that was not on near miss but you know was really heading towards us we'd be able to deal with it 
So you're te- saying technology is such that one couldn't take us by surprise. It couldn't sneak up on us. We'd see it coming. Well, a smaller one, a, a city killer still could because we haven't characterized all those. But like something that would take out the entire human civilization. I think we found most of those. How big is a city killer then? City killer, like I said, is probably going to be, you know, a hundred, like a football field, a football pitch size. You know, you hit one of those hits you and you're in trouble or, 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 you know, somewhere, you know, on that order, 500 meters across or so that would definitely, we haven't found all of those. What speed are they traveling? Oh, they're tra- <laughs> uh, you know, maybe like 36,000 miles an hour. So you got a football field size rock traveling yeah, yeah. at 36,000 miles an hour that could hit a city that we couldn't detect. Yeah. Yeah. Oh. Wow. All right. What is NASA's Techno Signatures Research Program? Yeah. So I am the principal investigator on, uh, which means I'm, you know, I'm sort of the, the research head for NASA's first grant to ever look for or start thinking about looking for techno signatures. And we, as we talked about, Techno signatures are this way that we're going to find alien life on alien planets, which is where you should look for it. And in much of the book, what I'm trying to show people, you know, I talk about UFOs in the book. I go through that because I know people are interested in it. I try and explain to people from a scientific point of view, how should you look? How should you separate the hype from, you know, the science? But as I, what's important is the way I'll put money down that long before we ever find evidence, evidence that UFOs have anything to do with aliens. We're going to find the evidence using the James, something like the James Webb Space Telescope. So techno signatures are this way that we're going to find them. And my, our job, my job as a NASA researcher, is to figure out what we should, what should we be looking for. So our research group has done things like we've shown that atmospheric pollution, things like uh, chlorofluorocarbons, which is this gas that was eating up the ozone that we, you know, we inadvertently pumped into the atmosphere. That if somebody else did that, we'd be able to see that. We'd be able to detect chlor- the chemical chlorofluorocarbons, which can only be produced by technology. We'd be able to find that in the sky of an alien uh, planet. And, you know, people might put chlorofluorocarbons into their atmosphere on purpose, as I talk about in the book, because it's a great greenhouse gas. So let's say you wanted to turn Mars, which right now, you know, Mars is a terrible place to live. But let's say you wanted to have enough atmosphere that it was warm enough that you could step outside maybe with just a breathing mask and you'd use chlorofluorocarbons. That's like, they're great for, 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 you know, warming up a planet. So, um, so that was an example of one of the things that we showed was possible to find in the air of an alien planet. And in the book, I try and walk people through like how we think we're going to go ahead and find that. And in the next 10, 20, 30 years, that's what we're going to be doing. And we're going to have evidence one way or the other about whether they exist. So what do you make of Roswell, Area 51, that kind of stuff? Yeah, mostly uh, a circus, you know? I mean, and so that's one of the reasons I really showed. I, I, you know, did a lot of, you know, research into the, like Roswell in particular, which is just a mess of like, you know, of hoaxes, conspiracy theories of, you know, everybody's got a different story. The important thing that people need to understand about like with UFOs is this idea that I talk about a lot in the book, um, standards of evidence. Right. In science, we're really mean to each other. We like, you know, there's a we're really brutal about how when somebody has a piece of evidence and they want to link it to a claim that they want to make with it. And uh, we're, we're really nasty about that because, you know, the only reason your cell phone works is because we've been so mean and nasty about that. Now, with UFOs, unfortunately, what happens is anything is evidence. You know, somebody's 
uncle's brother's hairdresser saw something in the sky, you know, over Roswell. And all of a sudden that's part of the whole story of Roswell and the crashed spaceships. And so, you know, when you look at it, if you're a scientist, there's a reason why scientists have stayed away from UFOs because there's so much terrible, either, either the hoaxes or the conspiracy theories, that it's impossible to separate the wheat from the chafe and figure out like what's worth spending your time on. Now we do have, I'm, I'm all in favor of like the NASA panel, that's the UAP panel, that like, okay, let's have a open, transparent scientific investigation of UFOs and UAPs and let's see where it leads. I mean, and th there's I, it, it, there's a chapter in the book where I, I explain what would a scientific investigation of UAPs and UFOs look like. But as of right now, there is no evidence. There's no hard evidence of the kind I would need if I'm saying that I found aliens on an alien planet to, to link UFOs to anything non-human. So I read a fascinating book once called Guns, Germs and Steel. And a theme of it was that whichever civilization or country had the most advanced technology, they would subjugate their neighbors and, you know, go around trying to conquer the earth. Does that apply to aliens? If they get here first, they've obviously got the superior technology. Would they then subjugate us? Is that in, Would that be in their nature? Like it's in humans' nature? Yeah, well, that's a good question. Um, that's the question of alien minds. What will alien minds be like? Will they be anything like us and you know the fun part one of the most fun parts in writing the book was the whole last section is about what will they be like you know how can we use science to imagine in a fun way you know fun fast way of what where evolution might take them and i think it's a giant it's a giant assumption to believe that their value systems their emotional makeup their their will be anything like ours so i think um now i'm i certainly don't think we should be trying to communicate with them i don't think we should be sending messages and being like hey, we're here, we're tasty, you know? Um, but I think it's it's like assuming they're even, they even have self-consciousness like we do, I think is a, is a giant assumption. So, you know, when they, when they arrive here, you know, I think we're going to be pretty surprised, maybe grossed out and yeah, maybe terrified or maybe not. We'll, you know, um, we'll have to see what happens. Yeah, I'm in a part of England where H.G. Wells originated from, so... <laughs> Uh, Adam, Adam, absolutely fascinating, riveting. Love the information. Thank you for spending time with us. Can you tell the viewers where they can find your book and support you on the socials? Yeah, so uh, the book, the little book of aliens, is available anywhere you know you buy books or online. Certainly, all of your online dealers. And uh, if you go to adamfrankscience.com, that has also a place you can you'll see where to buy the book, and you can see where I'm. Um, you know, uh, where I'm at with social media. I'm on, on Twitter or on X, it's Adam Frank four. And you can find me on Facebook, Facebook author page. So, and also Sean, thank you. This was a great conversation. I really enjoyed it. Oh, cheers. Take care, my friend. Have a great yeah, rest of your day. Bye-bye.